Good morning. It's Thursday, the 28th of September, and this is Govindraj Ethiraj coming to you from Mumbai, India's financial capital. If you're in the city, it's quite likely you're not out there, and if you're out there, today is the Visarjan Day or the Day of Immersion. Have fun if you can. Our top stories and themes of the day. Nomura upgrades India to overweight from neutral. The markets look up slightly. Hundred bagger stocks in Indian markets are mostly manufacturing companies. No import license for laptops, but an import management system. What's really changed? Akasa Air pilots can be sued for leaving, but should the airline do so? Google is 25 years old. Lessons for tech longevity. This is a core report with Govindraj Ethiraj. Nomura goes overweight. After JP Morgan lavished attention on India and Indian markets, more investment banks are following suit. All this comes after a brief lull of around 8 weeks in which we didn't see many reports and I'm not saying negative reports because all investment bank and brokerage reports in recent times, particularly international, have been positive. Nomura, the Japanese financial giant which manages over 358 billion dollars in assets worldwide, has upgraded its stance on the Indian market from neutral to overweight. In the Asia that's excluding Japan portfolio the brokerage has recommended a weight of around 18% that's 100 basis points higher than India's weightage in the benchmark MSCI Asia X Japan index. China and South Korea are the two other markets which Nomura is overweight on while it runs an underweight position on Singapore and Philippines. The structural story of India is now well known as a major beneficiary of the China plus 1 theme possessing a large liquid equity market. We see recent softness driven by higher oil prices as an opportunity to raise exposure says Nomura. While this weakness may persist in the near term thus presenting even better timing we do think the window of opportunity might not be open for too long. Valuations are expensive but will likely remain so in a scenario of policy government continuity Nomura equity strategist said in a note. Nomura also says that sustained high oil prices, China re-rotation and the general elections in May 24 are the key risks for the Indian markets according to the business standard. The 100 bagger stocks. Since there is some bullishness and that's a purely relative statement in the air again, maybe a good time to take a look at some stock stories too. Before we do that, thanks to the Nomura report which I just referred to, at least in the eyes of some analysts, the markets were up although only slightly. The BSE Sensex was up 173 points to 66,119 levels and the Nifty 50 was up 52 points at 19,716. So when markets are not going anywhere in any real sense, if only for a few days, it's a good time to look at some research and learnings from the past. Today I thought I would look at what stocks or what kind of stocks really deliver value. Now this is as much a comment on industries that have done well over time in India and survived several business cycles, namely a few hard knocks and some periods of exuberance, both of which can be quite damaging. As of course the companies that make up these industries and their stock prices of course. So, even if you're not looking to pick stocks, this is a useful listing or approach to see where your organization likely fits or wants to fit, particularly from a strategic and management point of view as I will explain shortly. 
So, ICICS Securities in an exhaustive report has concluded that traditional manufacturing and a few services companies form the bulk of the 100 baggers, sporting greater than 25% compounded annual growth of returns, stock price appreciation, ex-dividends over a 20-year period. And the 20-year period is what is important. Now, ICICS says that business models that flourish during economic upcycles and preserve value during downturns can be labelled as through-the-cycle compounders or TTC. And for this sample, there's a minimum of 25% compounding over the past 20 years to qualify for the list of TTC. To remind you, it's through the cycle, 100 baggers. Now, this is the second most critical part. Most of the stocks that constitute this list hail from traditional manufacturing. Commodities, that's chemical, cement, building materials, home appliances, capital goods, engineering, discretionary consumption, staples, and pharmaceuticals, among others. A few TTC baggers emanate from the services sector, such as financials and a rating agency, says ICICS Securities. I think I know which rating agency it is, but that's for another day. Now, economic cycles and investor behavior provide massive tailwinds or headwinds for stocks in the medium term. Investors could get carried away. So ICICI has outlined a couple of cycles. The first cycle belonged to capital-intensive and cyclical stocks, where investors reap the benefits of a booming investment and real estate cycle between 2003 and 2010. The second cycle belonged to low-earnings volatility and quality stocks. However, post-2010, capital expenditure, credit and real estate cycles started their respective journeys to decadal lows. In contrast, the NPA cycle, if you remember reading all the headlines, had only begun rising, thereby denting the performance of companies that formed part of these sectors. Cycle 3 is being driven by capital-intensive and cyclical stocks as investment cycles again pick up after a decade. Also, going by the past empirical evidence, it's quite likely that the richening of valuations for low-earnings volatility stocks or quality stocks seen in cycle 2 may mostly reverse going ahead. So the broad learnings for the 100 baggers if you want to join the club at some point or be part of a company that's heading there. Have a business-focused model. None of the stocks had a diversified business approach while there was a sharp focus on core business. This also speaks volumes as ICICI says about the quality of the management and their sharp focus that they bring to business strategy. And yes, When I talked about the second most important thing being the sectors themselves, this is the first or the most important thing as I see it. Focus on creating growth or focus on value creating growth. Earnings growth or return on equity being greater than cost of equity. This indicates a prudent capital allocation decision, particularly when the tailwinds of economic cycles propel earnings growth. And fourth, the business throws out more cash than it consumes. Of course, this is easier said. But then cumulative operating cash flow exceeded cumulative capital expenditure over the past two decades for most of these stocks, excluding in some cases where they were one-off acquisitions, and that speaks about the quality of the business. So now, what do you avoid? You should avoid high financial leverage and reduction in financial leverage over time. Regulated sectors, almost all the stocks in these 100 baggers were from unregulated sectors, except for, guess what, liquor. Now, competition is overstated. Competition is a key risk while evaluating a company, but obsessing over it may not be beneficial for an investor or for that matter if you're sitting in that company. Almost all these stocks belong to sectors where there were multiple competitors. ICICI also points out that fancy growth stories like the new age sectors during the 2000 dot-com bubble did not make it to the list. And cheap valuations to start with is obviously an important criterion. Import management licenses under a new name. 
As rules and regulations go, the complexity, however simple it might be presented as, is increasing. The Indian government trade officials showed a demo of a new import management system to IT hardware companies including Apple, Dell and HP, the Indian Express is reporting. Starting November 1st, companies have to register and disclose data related to their imports, countries from which they import electronics hardware like laptops and personal computers and the domestic sales value. On Monday, officials from the Director General of Foreign Trade, being those officials, met representatives from IT hardware companies and industry associations, representing to them the portal they are developing or have developed actually for tracking imports of laptops and computers. The portal has fields for sharing data related to import quantities, local sales value and import sources, an executive at the meeting told the Indian Express. Now, this of course comes on the back of a hurriedly and inexplicably sudden announcement that India would slap import licenses on imports of laptops and tablets. The objective, the larger one at least, was to force the big brands to manufacture and assemble locally. Not surprisingly, industry and consumers pushed back and the government had to delay the directive's implementation till October 31st. Now, there is a new import management system which in some ways is being positioned as a dilution of the original and which is... I would say a partial rollback at best from the original intent. But the larger idea here seems to be to reduce the degree of import dependence on the laptop supply chain and to the extent that some imports are unavoidable to import from a trusted source. Now, this is from the business standard. Equally, there is a production-linked incentive report scheme running. So, very broadly, there are incentives to manufacture locally and disincentives to import. Calibrating the two needs some thinking through and, of course, time. And it's a little unusual to say the least that the manner that this has been sprung on industry and users alike is not something that people have really digested well. The other concern is obviously that quotas and licenses in any system will slow things down, however tech-savvy the system of entering data might be. To understand how the domestic electronics industry was seeing this, remember they lobbied strongly for local manufacturer or more of it, I reached out to Sanjay Agarwal, president of the 56-year-old Electronics Industry Association of India or LCNA and also managing director of Globe Capacitors. I began by asking him how he was seeing the current steps and whether this is what local industry in the electronics space wanted. First of all, we welcome the PLI which was introduced by Indian government for manufacture of IT and hardware systems, laptops, desktops. The government did not find much applicants in that PLI scheme. So after that, to encourage people not to import, they announced a import licensing system that they intend to have a import licensing system. And against the industry protests and many people met the MOS, the government realizes that, that there is a case in that and they postponed it to 1st of November. But then, Within this time, they found sufficient applicants, about 58 applicants came in or under this scheme, PLI hardware scheme. Now, government has enough players which they expected to invest in this field. And now, they also know that there would be a lot of hardships to general public, industry at large, with the import restriction really kicking. So, what I understand is the basic fundamental behind this import restriction and then going on relaxing is that they wanted these industry to come forward and invest in the country rather than importing and selling it. So with the new import regulations which are kicking in, it is just keeping the data of these importers and manufacturers, okay, how much you're going to import, how much you're going to manufacture and when you're going to manufacture. 
So when they give, they have to give such data to authorities, so they will be committed. Otherwise, it will be open and important, and nobody would be interested in the fashionable voting. Right. So what this means is that every component in a laptop, for example, has to be now separately tagged and registered. What I believe this is for the finished all-in-ones, desktops, laptops. It is not for the component. So what's the import management here then? They will go to the Ministry of Commerce for a license. Okay, we type to manufacture these many import so many pieces. They will have to give a data. Okay, we will report this much. And by this time, we are going to start the production. And this is for so much period. So they make a commitment because they cannot leave any column black. They will have to commit when the manufacturing, domestic manufacturing is starting and how much the export they intend to do. So after a year, the government has the data. They can ask them, where are you now? You committed to us, okay, after one year, you will start manufacturing here and you will start exporting also. So what is your status? Up till now, there was no monitoring of this. This is just a monitoring, I believe, to make these players serious about manufacturing in the country. Right. So these quotas that could kick in after a year, which will depend on the import value of the previous year, the quantum of domestic manufacturing and exports, of course. Now, from a logistics point of view, and when I say logistics, I don't mean the transport logistics, but the management of all of this data and then going back and forth with the Director General of Foreign Trade. I mean, how easy or difficult is that going to be for companies to do? I believe this is a very simple one-time registration they have to do by declaring at the DGFT that how much they intend to import for the entire year. And they don't have to go to the DGFT every time. They can import at various ports across the country against that one single document they will get from DGF. Right. So you started off by talking about the PLI. So between the PLI, which is an incentive, versus, let's say, any quota or a license, which is a disincentive, what is likely to work better in the context of electronics manufacture? The PLI is going to work always better. The problem was that people were not taking the PLI very seriously and they were, no one was coming forward to do the investment. With this announcement, that everybody started taking the government seriously and they came forward. And government is not using any new piece, any restriction at this moment. They only have to declare how much you're going to import and when you're going to start the manufacturing and how much you intend to export after that. So that means these all that companies who have not applied on the PLI, they have some sort of, say, report back to the government after a year. Okay, where were we in 2023 and where are we in 2024? Right. And speaking as a domestic manufacturer now, Sanjay, what's your sense? I mean, all of this was supposed to help trigger or push the manufacture of components domestically. So where are we in that broad journey right now? Well, IT hardware is going to be manufactured here. At initially, it would be going to be EMS through EMS route, and that later on, there could be core manufacturing of these finished hardware. There would be a generation of components demand. Right now, that demand is fed by finished products coming in. When the demand is met locally, so there would be interest in the industry to invest in the component side also. Okay, so let me put it differently. So I've asked you this before as well. So you are confident that if you take, let's say, a laptop like Apple, that the Indian manufacturing industry for components will be able to produce all the components that an Apple laptop or a MacBook would need one year from today? I believe it will take little time, three to four years time, but we find that at least 40% to 50% of the world will be metro. 
not 100%. Okay, so you're saying that in three to four years is your own target in our sense of how we could be achieving more self-sufficiency. The government has put a $300 billion electronic ecosystem in the country and this is all going towards that. They need to work on some more specified policies for corporate manufacturing gear. I believe government is working on that. So we should hear from them. That will also help the corporate industry to grow when they are required to fill the demand of these new hardware manufacturers only. Right. Sanjay, thank you so much for joining me. And the China battery factor. Speaking of manufacturing, in a conversation for the Core Report Weekend Edition, Louis Vincent gave, a Hong Kong-based fund manager and researcher, attempted to bust the myth that industry was fleeing China. According to him, while it was true that industries were moving out, most of them were in lower-value-add areas. He even quoted the example of toys, an industry where India has virtually banned imports from China. According to him, China is almost happy to let these industries go because its focus instead is on industries where there is a higher value add and a stranglehold, like batteries. A report in Bloomberg just yesterday says that where China truly flexes its might, for example, in batteries, is in cell components, the four key parts that are essential for a battery to work. It has about 70% of the world's production capacity of cathodes, the part of the cell that receives the electrons, and more than 80% of anodes, the part that releases electrons on discharge, and well over half of electrolyte and separator output. All these parts come together to make a lithium-ion battery, more than three-quarters of which are made in China, and mostly by two firms, Contemporary Amperex Technology and BYD. And then there are the costs. China's battery packs come at about $127 per kilowatt hour on a volume-weighted average basis, while prices in North America and Europe are 24 to 33% higher, according to research reports. And all of this is from Bloomberg. So this is just something to note in the context of manufacture and China plus one. Should Akasa sue its pilots? Two weeks ago, a lawyer representing Akasa Air, the 13-month airline, said that the quitting of some 42 pilots by the airline could see it shutting down. He said this in court, potentially to make a dramatic impact. However, the impact was much more and elsewhere. Before that, the lawyers were taking the pilots to court over breach of contract and abandoning their posts before serving their six-month notice period. The pilots were allegedly poached by or left for Air India Express, belonging to the Tatas now. Now, shutting down was statistically difficult since this was only 10% of the airline pilots, from what I understand, that had decamped. But the damage was done with media outlets headlining the lawyer's statement, suggesting the airline was virtually shutting shop or was about to shut shop, which in turn prompted the management to issue statements urging calm and pointing out that except for some cancellations, all was well. Quite surprisingly, a senior pilot or two of the airline also came out and said that their airline was in fine fettle and they, as pilots, were quite happy with Akasa and looking forward to the future with optimism or similar words. Now back to the case. The Delhi High Court on Wednesday held that Aviation Watchdog Director General of Civil Aviation could act against pilots who have not complied with civil aviation requirements and this was a relief to Akasa Air where it further held that there were no restrictions on the DGCA to take actions against pilots in case of default. The regulator had previously told the Delhi High Court that it lacked the authority to intervene in the employment agreements between pilots and airlines. Meanwhile, the Bombay High Court ruled that Akasa Air could proceed in Mumbai with its suit seeking contractual damages from pilots who had allegedly exited the company without even serving a notice period. 
Originally, Akasa had approached the High Court seeking compensation of 21 crore rupees from six pilots for allegedly leaving the carrier without that notice period. While Akasa Air may or may not win this round, it is highly unlikely that any pilot can or will cough up these kind of monies. Pilots I've spoken to said they quit and lift precisely because they were getting money elsewhere, a situation that's a little more acute after COVID left the entire aviation industry worldwide in the doldrums. So, a settlement of some sort between the pilots and the airline is obviously called for, so that everyone can get back to work, of course, bury their egos a little bit, and get back to business. The question, of course, is when. Google is 25 years old. And before I go, did you know that Google has just celebrated its 25th birthday? 25 years ago, Larry Page and Sergey Brin launched Google Search from a small garage in a California suburb. Where else, you might wonder or ask? Well, today Google has offices and data centers on six continents in over 200 cities. Google's purpose and mission is broadly the same from the day it launched. Its ambition in 1998 was to create a search engine that would help people make sense of the information they find online, and that's still true today. And Google says it has of course become more than a search engine. Today it maps the world, brings AI into everyday tools, and helps people gain skills in digital careers, among other things. Of course, there's much more to say, but it's interesting that the founders of Google, Meta or Facebook era seem to have, perhaps in perfect hindsight, set out to build enterprises that would not just endure despite all these rapid changes in the world of technology, but they themselves would nurture and grow over the years, decades actually. On that note of longevity and 100 baggers, that's it from me for today. Have a great day ahead. Don't forget to go to www.thecore.in, subscribe to our newsletter, read our website, and do, of course, send your feedback to our podcast on govindraj at thecore.in. Bye for now. This was The Core Report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at The Core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in that is www.thecore.in or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at thecore.in. Thank you for listening.